Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. If you have a Bible, open it with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. So last Saturday, uh, we played soccer in the morning, and then afterwards we were looking for a place to go eat lunch with the family, and it's always a thing where you get in the truck, and it's like, all right, what's the plan? Where are we going to go eat? Um, and I always ask the family, and, and, and that Saturday, we decided to go to Buffalo Wild Wings, and that's not typically a place here that we, we think to go. I'm not sure why. It's just kind of hidden away a little bit, but that Saturday, we decided to go to Buffalo Wild Wings, and of course, all of the 11 o'clock Saturday morning college football games were on, the screens all over the room, like it's, it's an amazing place to watch college football, right? Well, my eight-year-old son, I guess, I know that he's been there, but he's eight, right? And so uh, he couldn't, I guess, remember that he had been there, but he was fascinated by Buffalo Wild Wings. I mean, his little eight-year-old football brain was just in heaven watching all of these games, and he talked about it nonstop. He's just loving it, right? And so we were sitting there for a while. They brought us our food, and he's kind of at that age where you can look in his eyes and tell he's thinking about something, but he's not really there in the room with you at that moment, right? He's thinking about some other world or some other thing that's happening. And so we were sitting there for a little bit, and all of a sudden, he just speaks up. And what he said, I never want to forget. He said, this is where my first date will be. It's Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> this is where my first date will be. And... He's eight, right? And I was like, well, buddy, you're going to have to find a girl who really loves sports. And he goes, well, yeah, of course, you know. <laughs> so the boy has a plan, you know. He's, he's got a plan. So that's, that's kind of the direction uh, that we're headed in this morning is talking about plans. And when I'm talking about plans, I'm not just talking about um, like where you're going to eat for lunch or something like that. I'm talking about bigger than that. Your way of living, the way that you go about life, your plan your ways, your thoughts. That's what we're looking at. And we all have those. We all have plans. We all have preferences and things like that. The question is this morning, do my plans align with God's plans? Do my plans align with his, right? So Mark chapter eight is, uh, most scholars say it's like the hinge point in the book. The book has 16 chapters, so chapter eight's right in the middle, right? And, um, and what's happened in this book is the first seven and a half chapters or so is all talking about who Jesus is. That's what Mark wants you to see, who Jesus is. And it ends um, in the text just above where we're really gonna focus in this morning with a famous uh, point where Jesus is walking with his disciples in Mark chapter eight, verses 27 through 30. Jesus is walking with his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they respond, they're like, um, I mean, people say that you're a good guy. Uh, maybe John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, something like that. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he, and he said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's the most important question that every single person has to answer in this life, right? Who do you say that Jesus is? And the way that Mark closes that first section of the book describing who Jesus is, is he very clearly wants us to see through the words of Peter, as Peter says, well, we say that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the promised one. The one that, that, that Old Testament scripture points to saying that you are the coming one who's gonna save this, the world from its sin, right? You're the Messiah. So 
That is the who is Jesus section. It kind of closes that way. And now where we pick up this morning, it, it, the book shifts to, okay, what did the Messiah come to do, right? And so we're headed towards the cross, obviously. But Jesus this morning is gonna lay out for his disciples his plan. This is the plan that I have. And by default, the plan for your life as well. We talked last week about the woman who came to Jesus and she was desperate. Do you remember that? She had a desperate need. And we talked all about what it looks like to be desperate to follow after Jesus. Well, here, he's gonna show us, if you wanna follow after me, this is what it looks like. This is the plan. All right, so Mark chapter eight, we're gonna start in verse 31. If you have your, have your Bible, follow along with me. Mark chapter eight, verse 31. It says, then he began to teach them, that's Jesus, that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what we see here, all right, is, is I think we see two plans. I think we very clearly see two plans. We see the plan for Jesus' life and the plan for ours. So we'll start first with the plan for Jesus. Verse 31, he starts by saying that right after Peter says, you are the Messiah, Jesus says, great. And he begins to teach them, and he says, it, it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected, be killed, and rise after three days. So there's some terms that we need to understand here. First, he says that the Son of Man will suffer. That title, Son of Man, is important. It's kind of an interesting title, right? Why would Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? It's actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it over 80 times in the Gospel accounts. Um, and, and it comes from Daniel chapter 7, this title, Son of Man. So Daniel chapter 7 is a, is a prophecy book, which is foretelling of what, what is to come, right? And in that chapter, the people are suffering and all of that, but then it shifts its gaze to the Ancient of Days, and it says, then the Son of Man. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 is, is where this is found. And essentially what it says about this Son of Man character, or this Messiah, this, pro, this, uh, this anointed one that's coming, he's going to have an eternal uh, dominion, eternal power, and an eternal kingdom. That's what Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says. It also goes on to say that all the nations and peoples of the earth will bow before him. So that's, that's what they would have understood this Son of Man reference to be. And Jesus is now saying that it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer. Like Jesus says, it's necessary for him to be three things, rejected, killed, and rise. That's what's gonna happen to the Son of Man. He's gonna be rejected, he's gonna be killed, and he's going to rise. Now, 
It's interesting because this is the first time the disciples are hearing about this. They don't know that Jesus is going to be killed. As Christians, we know how the story goes, right? We know how we're, we're walking towards Mark chapter 15, where Jesus is going to be hung on a cross and he's going to be crucified. But they didn't know that. And, and say you're not a Christian, say you don't even know the story of Jesus, but you're just a reader and you've been reading Mark, you even have more information than what the disciples knew at this moment. Because Mark chapter 3 verse 6 says, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. And so it's been the plan that's coming, but the disciples didn't know that that's what was going to happen. So for them, when Jesus says, it's necessary for me to be rejected and killed, this is shocking news for them. It's shocking, right? And what you see is Peter does not like the plan. He says, no, like, there's got to be a different plan here. There's a different way of doing this, Jesus. Haven't you seen the crowds that are following us everywhere? We're not going to go to Jerusalem, and they're, they're not going to kill you. They're going to put a crown on your head. They're going to they're make you the king when we get there. That's what Peter was wanting. And I think he's confused for a couple of reasons. Maybe he didn't hear the part where Jesus said he is going to rise from the dead. <laughs> He's going to get up, you know. Maybe, maybe Peter either didn't hear that or maybe he didn't understand it. We know that he doesn't understand what that means in the next chapter. In chapter 9, uh, verse 9, it says that after the whole Mount of Transfiguration thing happens, Jesus ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It says this, they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. They had no context. They didn't didn't even understand what he was meaning. So either they didn't hear Jesus say he was going to rise, or they didn't understand what that meant. But either way, they're not putting it all together, and they definitely do not like the idea of Jesus saying he's going to Jerusalem to be killed. They don't like that plan. It's their friend, right? They've been walking with Jesus for three years. So they don't like that for, for personal reasons, but also they don't like it because that's not what the Messiah is supposed to come and do in their minds. Right? In their minds, this goes against everything that they thought the Messiah would come to be. The Jewish people were expecting a Messiah that was triumphant, one who was a dominant warrior, one who demanded respect, one who would establish dominance over their enemies. That's who they were expecting the Messiah to be. In fact, I've got kind of a few things that will be on the screen for you. This is what they wanted Jesus to be. Or, or this is what they wanted the Messiah to be, which Peter just claimed he is the Messiah, right? So this is what they want Jesus to be. The Jews were expecting someone who would come to save their nation, right? Make their nation great and influential. They wanted someone, they wanted Jesus or the Messiah to come and give them power, overthrow the Roman government and the military oppression that they were facing. They wanted the Messiah to come and make them prosperous and comfortable as a, as a nation, And they wanted the Messiah to come and ultimately improve their lives. That's what the Jewish people wanted out of the Messiah. That's what they were expecting. And I'm not sure how they came to that understanding, right? I think maybe they they just held on to some of the things from Scripture that they they really like, some of the promises that they really like, like Jeremiah 29, 11. We talked about that in our Jeremiah series about, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your future and a hope and all all that stuff. Maybe they're holding on to 2 Samuel 7, 13 that talks about how the the Messiah is going to come and sit on the throne and reign for all of eternity. Maybe they're holding on to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, that the Son of Man or the Messiah is going to come 
and he's going to have eternal dominance and power and a kingdom, and all the nations are going to bow before him. Maybe they're holding on to those things. And listen, all of those things are true, but I think they were also ignoring a lot of stuff that's in the Old Testament talking about how the Messiah is going to come and suffer. I mean, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 explicitly says that his heel is going to be bruised. Psalm 22 and many other places, maybe the, the clearest example I can give you of the suffering of the Messiah is Isaiah chapter 53. You know that one? That's a suffering servant. Here's a snippet out of Isaiah 53. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. See, this plan that Jesus is presenting of a, of a Messiah who had come to suffer, be rejected, and killed, that's nothing new. That's been in there the whole time, right? It, it's, it's, it's been there all along, but I think they missed it because they were picking and choosing pieces out of scripture that they liked or that made them feel comfortable or that made them feel more powerful and they were trying to make Jesus fit their expectations. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus tells Peter. Verse 33, he says, get behind me, Satan, which by the way, it's a bad day when Jesus calls you Satan, right? He says, you aren't thinking about God's concerns, but your own. And I think that's what this whole text really uh, revolves around, is that verse. You aren't thinking about God's concerns, but your own. See, Peter thinks he knows more than Jesus does. He wants a Jesus that fits his agenda. So he tries to rebuke and reshape Jesus' plans to fit his own. And the question I have is, are we not guilty of the exact same thing? Are we not guilty of that? That we want a warrior God to fight for our agenda and our plans? We like a Jesus that we can control or one who looks like us and thinks like us and prefers the things that we prefer? I mean, even the, the, the Jewish idea of what the Messiah would come to, to do and be sounds oddly specific and oddly familiar, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like American cultural Christianity to me. Let's look at that list again. They wanted a God who would save their nation, or might I say, make their nation great again. They wanted a nation who would give them power in the world. They wanted, they wanted a God who would make them prosperous and comfortable. They wanted a God who would improve their life, certainly not demand their lives. That's what they were looking for. And I don't want you to miss what Jesus says about that. He calls that line of thinking demonic. He says, get behind me, Satan. You aren't thinking about God's plan. You're thinking about your own. So trying to fit Jesus into your plans and your ideas, according to Jesus himself, is demonic. In fact, I would say that's the fastest way to be rebuked by Jesus is try and, try and get your preferences and your, your, your plans over his. All right? So the question that we need to wrestle with this morning is, are you submitting to Jesus as King and Lord, or have you constructed some fake little God that looks and sounds a whole lot like you? The plan that Jesus lays out is what goes. 
fact, he says it's necessary. See that? He says it's necessary. That means his plan is a must. It's crucial. It's why he was born. Why is his plan to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to rise again? Why is that necessary? Well, to save you and to save me and to save Peter and to save his disciples and to save the world from its sin. See, Romans tells us that sin demands death. Sin demands death. And so they didn't realize it. But if Peter would have convinced Jesus to alter course and change his plan, there'd be no salvation for the world. There'd be no salvation because sin demands death and Jesus came to lay down his own life in their place and in your place. He was killed. He did rise from the dead three days later just as he said that he would so that you and I can know him. So that's the invitation to every single person is to place your trust and your faith in Jesus for salvation, knowing that your sin separates you from a holy God, knowing that he's paid everything so that you can know him. You yield your life to him. You trust him for your salvation. And you can do that this morning. It is a a one-time decision that needs to be made. Scripture talks about it as like a birth. So it is a moment. It is a thing that happens. But then after you trust Jesus, then it's an ongoing walk. It's an ongoing following. And that's what we're going to look at next because those who trust Jesus are called followers of him, right? And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, this is what it looks like. So second, we see the plan for his followers. The plan for his followers. Verse 34 is the big one in this section. Verse 34 through 38, verse 34 is the emphasis. Verses 35 through 38, all of them start with the word for in your Bible, unless you're reading a CSB and they they get it wrong here. And on verse 37, they don't put the word for, but it's there in the Greek. It's the Greek word gar, which is a, it's a, it's a connecting word, meaning all those verses 35 through 38 are modifiers of verse 34, okay? Helps you understand verse 34. And that verse says that Jesus called the crowd along with the disciples and he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I think the best way to understand that verse is to back up to what Jesus just said in verse 33. That he told Peter, you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Again, it's all about this plan thing. And and the plan for Jesus' followers is to follow his plan above their own, right? Above their own. So that's the reason he says, this is how you do it. You gotta deny yourself. Deny yourself. Uh, Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. To deny yourself does not mean denying yourself good or, or happy things in this life. There are people that think that there are cults that, that think that, right? That you just deny yourself of any happiness or any joy in this world, and that's what Jesus means there. That's not what he means. Jesus created a lot of really good things in this world for you. And not just you, world in general, right? You don't even have to be a Christian to enjoy the good graces of God that he's created. Things like relationships, things like nature, being out in nature and seeing the beauty of what he's created. Things like food and the fact that food has flavor, right? You realize he didn't have to put flavor in food? That's a good gift from God. He knew that if you mash up some tomatoes and you mix some milk with some stuff, it makes cheese and you smash it all together, it tastes like pizza. That's a good gift from God, right? He did that. He didn't have to do that. So this verse isn't talking about denying yourself good and happy 
things in the context of what's happening here, this talk of denying yourself is the denial of your plans, your preferences, your ways, your ideas. Why does he need to say that? Because we're extremely selfish. Just like we see with with Peter. Like you see it in Peter's response. We want what we want. We like our things and our preferences and our plans. We like bigger and better and status and influence and money and, and all those kind of things. There's a guy named Tom Brady. I'm sure you've heard of him. I can't stand him, right? I think Peyton Manning is the goat, and, uh, but Tom Brady has a lot more Super Bowls, but whatever. Anyway, after Tom Brady's third Super Bowl, he was interviewed, and he was asked the question of like, so what does it feel like? You just won your third Super Bowl. How, how do you feel? And Tom Brady responded with essentially this. I have three Super Bowl rings, but there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more to life than this. He says, I mean, this can't be all there is to it. The, the um, guy who was doing the interview said, well, well what is it? What is it that, that, that would make life more meaningful? And Tom Brady says, I have no idea. I wish I knew, right? It, it sounds a lot like the writer of Ecclesiastes. He's saying, I searched the world for all kinds of happiness and and I chased dreams, and I chased passions, and I chased all of my plans, and they all ended up at a dead end, right? You've read that book. And only true happiness comes from God is what the writer of Ecclesiastes points us to. Everything else is meaningless under the sun. And essentially, that's what you hear Tom Brady saying, and that's what I think the point is of Jesus saying, you gotta deny yourself because your plans are too little. Your plans are selfish. Your plans need to be denied because true joy is only found in Jesus. He then goes on one step further and he says, you gotta take up your cross. So you gotta deny yourself and you gotta take up your cross. So Mark's writing this to a Roman audience. They understood what the cross meant. The Romans, they perfected the, the art of execution by crucifixion. They, they understood it completely. In fact, there's, there's ancient history writers that talk about Nero putting Christians on crosses and lighting them on fire to serve as light post for the city, right? Plus, they knew the story of Jesus and his crucifixion. They understood about Jesus carrying his own cross up to his death. So, so these people that he's writing to, they understood this, this cross reference. They understood that the cross was a death sentence, that the cross represented oppression and pain and suffering and shame and death. And so now they're being told, and we're being told, that as his followers, we must daily, Luke adds the word in there, Luke 9, 23, we must daily be putting to death anything and everything that is not of Jesus. See, he's died the literal death on a cross. Some of these readers in, in Mark's day probably had to go to a cross as well. I doubt you and I will. So Jesus has died that death for us, but now as his followers, we follow in his footsteps. We reject ourselves, just as Jesus is gonna be rejected, and then we kill sin, kill our pride, kill our plans by taking up our cross daily. Mark 8, 35 helps us understand this, this verse, I think. It says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. So uh, 
understand there the, the importance of what he says, whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel. Like you're not just, it's not just self-sacrifice. You're not just, you know, putting yourself through the ringer for no reason. Like you're doing it for Jesus and, and for the sake of the gospel. But he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Save in that context is meaning avoiding the cross, right? It's a modifier of verse 34, and so he's saying if you want to save your life by avoiding the cross, again, the cross represents opposition and pain and shame and death and, and all those kind of things, so to save it would mean that you're pursuing acceptance and personal glory and comfort and safety. You're pursuing all the things that our plans are usually formed around, but this passage is a violent collision between God's plans and yours. That's what's happening in this text. The way of Christ is opposite of where we naturally lean. That's why we need to wake up daily, crucify our selfish, sinful plans. Essentially, Jesus is calling you to more in this passage. As his followers, he's calling you up. He's calling you to better. He's calling you to more, calling you away from your stubborn, sinful ways and plans. So I told you whenever we go out to eat as a family, usually there's a moment in the truck where I'll say, what do you guys want? Where are we, where are we going to eat, you know? And without fail, my five-year-old Ames will say Chick-fil-A every single time. That's, his, that's always his answer, right? Even on Sundays. And Kanye told us it's, it's closed on Sundays, right? And so we can't go there, but he always wants to go. And so sometimes I'll throw out, um, well, hey, what about... What about Texas Roadhouse? Like, let's take it up a notch. Let's, let's not go to, I love Chick-fil-A, but tonight let's go to Texas Roadhouse, right? And so we finally get there, and we're asking the kids, what do you want to eat or whatnot? And Ames says, chicken nuggets, right? Even at Texas Roadhouse, he still wants his chicken, you know, and that's what he always wants. And I'm offering, like, man, I'm getting some steak. You want some of this or you want some shrimp? Like, it's good stuff. And he just hangs on to this idea of, no, I'm good with the chicken nuggets. In the same way, right? We get so stuck in our ways, our ideas, our plans, thinking that we know what's best, and Jesus is calling us to something far better. But we live like a kid begging for chicken nuggets when steak is on the menu. His way, his plan is so much better than anything you could come up with. Any other way that you can live because his way leads to life. That's what it says. If you lose your life for him and for the gospel, you will actually save your life. So he says, he says, this leads to life. Follow me. That's the invitation. Follow me. And that has two, two time periods, two implications. It's both now and it's later. Here's what I mean. It's, it's now. Follow Jesus is now, meaning it is a present and it's active in the way that it's written there, meaning it's ongoing. Following Jesus is an everyday practice. It's not just a one-time decision, although it definitely starts there. It's a daily practice of denying yourself, crucifying your selfish plans, and choosing to follow the plans he's laid out for your life. Why? Because his plans are better. They lead to life here. But they also lead to life later. Just as Jesus is gonna be rejected, crucified, and he's gonna rise, we as his followers are called to walk in that same path. Reject yourself, crucify your sin, and rise with him. Get up with him, follow him. Verse, eight, verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will, that's future tense, save it. So this is speaking of 
the future eternal sense that those who follow the plans of Jesus will be saved for all of eternity. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus clearly laid out. Here's the plan. Follow me. It leads to life. So do you see how following his plan is way better than anything that you could come up with on your own? It's way better. So as we close, I want to ask you a question. Are you submitting to his plans or are you just trying to convince him of yours? Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.